Hi, I'm Joanne Bregan. I was a nurse but wanted to go into teaching, so I did the postgraduate diploma in education practice at NCI. The course was excellent and everything I learned there, I definitely use now in my teaching career. When I see myself now, I see living proof that NCI really helped me find my path. On Wednesday, June 8th from 5 to 7 p.m., join us for NCI's on-campus open evening and learn about our full and part-time courses in business, computing, psychology and education. To register, visit ncirl.ie. The last word on Today FM with Matt Cooper. We have a renaissance man tonight for the Culture Club here on The Last Word at Today FM. He's a musician, he's a composer, he's a satirist, he's an historian. He has written and toured shows on 1798, The Irish Revolution, and Michael Collins, amongst others. And for many years, you would have seen him too, leading the music on The Late Late Show. Paddy Cullivan, thank you very much for joining us. How are you doing, Matt? Thanks so much. I'm very good. Well, we start with the music, so yeah. we ask everyone, sort of like to, sort of the formative influences first single you ever bought but you don't actually have a single but you do have early musical influence you remember I do I, d- I did buy a single um, my mother's from New Jersey uh, so we used to go over every single summer and in the Willowbrook Mall I picked up my first ever tape which was Queen's Greatest Hits which is like getting 17 of the best first singles of all time unfortunately because it's such a brilliant work of art you know there's so much v- v- variety on remind it. us of what would be on that well, it starts a Bohemian Rhapsody into Another One Bites the Dust, into Killer Queen, into Old Fashioned Lover Boy, and it goes on. We Will Rock You, We're the Champions. Very hard, mad after that to like any other music. Like, I struggled to like Led Zeppelin. I struggled to like all the rest of it after that because it was so perfect. There's something about Queen which is almost... What's perfect about Queen? It's just pure music. It's per- perfection in musical form. That's how I feel about it. And then as I got older then, I, I kind of saw how the critics of the 70s couldn't stand Queen. You know, they'd be given out about them and all this kind of stuff. And I just didn't understand it. So I kind of came of age at around 11, 12 when Queen brought out Radio Gaga. So I was kind of, that was when both my love for them, having bought the tape, and then I was a real nerd. I bought every album, Queen 1, Queen 2, in order. That's kind of how nerdy I was. But then I was kind of around for Radio Gaga coming out. And I was an Uber fan at that stage. And then you had One Vision and A Kind of Magic and then the Live Aid performance. So I was a complete fanatic. How much of it those down to Freddie Mercury? I mean, could you watch Queen now with Adam Lambert singing instead of Freddie Mercury? I find it really hard. I mean, I love them. And I, I think I didn't like them with Paul Rogers because I love Paul Rogers as a rock singer, but I don't think he could sing Queen. There are certain like Queen's hard. Adam Lambert can really sing it. But... You, do, you just miss Freddie. I mean, it's you, his presence, his stagemanship, and all that. The whole thing was amazing. But you see, also, I got really into the idea that all four of them were writing. So there was a kind of a competitive edge to them. So Radio Gaga was written by Roger Taylor, the drummer. Another one, Bites of Dust, was written by John Deacon, the bass player. Freddie wrote Bohemian Rhapsody. Brian wrote uh, Hammer to Fall and stuff like that. He was more of the rocker side of things. So I, I love that. I love the kind of competition. It wasn't like the Beatles, it was more like, you know. You know, we're at loggerheads here and we're going to produce the best music we can make. And the song that you've picked from the 17 on Queen's Greatest Hits <laughs> is Flash, which wasn't it used as the theme tune for the Flash Gordon remake? Yes. Uh, well, of, of 1980, yeah, the, the great movie, which I also was watching uh, along with Star Wars. And it was the campest, most amazing sci-fi movie. So it combined everything I loved, sci-fi. And of course, I was into Queen then who were into this kind of Art Deco metropolis, 1930s vision of sci-fi. And so when I heard this, it was like a, a sci-fi movie mixed with a song and it blew my mind. Let's hear a little bit of Flash.
haven't heard that in a while and it is great fun actually isn't it it's great and you get the clips with it and you know in the 2000s then I as I put my satirist hat on and I did a satire of George Bush called Bush uh, you know you know and I put a bad word and said of the universe and it was great so I kind of did the Iraq war using that uh, kind of thing President Saddam Bush forces approaching what do you mean Bush forces approaching and all this kind of stuff so it as, as well as being superlative brilliant songs like Bicycle Race you know and yeah. all the rest of it all those amazing songs around it but uh, it ripe for satire and, and ripe for musical joy as well you know I, I just it was very hard like I say to get into anything else after that well, you did get into other things. And of course, famously on this programme, many times you've said there has been no good music made <laughs> since 1994, I think is your cut-off point. Yeah. So take us to your favourite album, which definitely goes back to the 60s. Well, um, funny enough, I, I never realised until later on that Queen were huge fans of the Beach Boys. And, I, you know, so I, I did start getting into that and they had that same musical perfectionism, that marvellous harmonic thing going on. But my favourite album, I think, it actually came out in 2004. I became obsessed with the Beach Boys and Pet Sounds a lot, obviously. But in the history, we know about this this album that never got released, Smile. It was the, the follow-up to Pet Sounds, but Brian Wilson had a kind of a mental breakdown during it. But he released it in its full finery in 2004. I went to see was it live. Was it reworked at that stage or was it what he had recorded in the 60s? It, it, it was very close, almost exactly what he recorded in the 60s because patches of it were released over subsequent Beach Boys album but this is where they finally put it all together with a great band called The Wonderments who became his touring band but it sounded exactly the same it was produced in the same way lyrics by Van Dyke Parks and almost a kind of a almost a kind of a historical trip through Americana and, and all the rest of it but the big single off it was actually Good Vibrations which uh, was a massive number one, 1966. So this was the album set up to actually challenge Sgt. Pepper. And I think had it come out at the time, we would have, musical history would be very different. I think it would be lauded as a masterpiece. Well, let's hear a bit of Good Vibrations. I, I love the Okay, good vibrations. Are no. you a, are you a fan of that, Matt? I like it. Oh, it's great. It's I, it 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 blew everyone's mind when it came yeah. out. I love the cello going crazy there all through the chorus. I mean, there's some really and the theremin as well, which is this kind of crazy Russian instrument that he's using in there as well. So, I mean, huge experimentation and yet a perfect what he called a pocket symphony, like a perfect pop song. Your favourite band, you've gone for Sly and the Family Stone. Why so? Yeah, very tough because I mean, I love. Um, you know, if I was to think of like some of my favourite people like Prince and the Revolution, I love Earth, Wind and Fire to me are one of the greatest bands of all time. But I don't you think... You really like upbeat sort of stuff, happy stuff that makes <laughs> you get up and dance and puts a smile on your face, don't you? You're thinking that, but there's actually a, there's a dark edge to all of it. You know what I mean? But yeah, Queen Queen are always a little bit edgy sometimes in, in, in what they're talking about. But also, um, you know, Beach Boys can be, you know, the smile is quite deep and dark and, and goes all over the place. But And the Sly and the Family Stone are the same. It seems like this kind of really happy music. The reason I love it though is 
I don't think Prince and I don't think Earth, Wind and Fire and I think they wouldn't exist without him. He put this band together of black and white people, uh, men and women from San Francisco in the late 60s and just came out with single after single that like everyday people and uh, family affair and thank you for letting me be myself again. Every one of them got to number one. He sold millions and millions of albums. But then like he starts going in mad descent himself a bit like Brian Wilson and his music becomes darker and more cynical. And yet there's still this uplifting feeling of it. I, I suppose, I don't know what I'm looking at. It's a kind of, maybe the stuff I love is kind of upliftingly musical, but also with a dark lyrical edge as well. And I think what's most important about Sly and the Family Stone, if you buy their greatest hits, is that uh, almost there's almost a new genre of music created in every single song they made. The track you recommended is I Want to Take You Higher, performed live at Woodstock in 1969. Why that particular track? Because I think when I first heard it, when I was getting into bands myself, and, you know, the first time I ever played music, I was so nervous I couldn't open my eyes. I, w- I, was, I was in Mount Temple School playing with two other lads and we were playing A Wheel of Confusion by Black Sabbath. Um, and I couldn't open my eyes. And then I was going like, how do I connect with audiences? How do I do this? And then I heard Woodstock and where he gets, and you know, Woodstock is the most boring thing in the world, Matt. You know, it's like real old hippie drudgery. Do you know what I mean? A lot of it for me, right? And then Saturday night, on comes Lion to Family Stone and this is the most perfect soul review show and gets half a million people singing, I want to take you higher. And it was the loudest sound I'd ever heard. And I just realized, ah, this is how you connect with an audience. This is how you get people going. Let's hear it. image Paddy of your time with the Late Late Show house band did you ever try that any night I want to take you higher yeah except the Late Late Show audience, audience clap on the one and the three Matt that's the problem they, they, they <laughs> only kidding there's a lack of funk going on in there right but uh, uh, no I mean and at the end that song goes into Hey Music Lover which you know S-Express and all these bands that came out then in the 90s so there was a whole throwback and look back by techno and dance music, which is also another time I loved. So they were all looking back to Sly and the Family Stone. So that kind of informs the kind of audience interaction. The, the thing we've lost, obviously, with COVID is the ability for people to come together and actually go crazy like that, you know. Let's go to best gigs. I mean, I think we're all missing gigs. And <laughs> you've picked out an individual who's actually a fascinating individual. I heard an interview with him on a podcast earlier in the year, Mark Marlon, and didn't realise just the incredible life story of David Lee Roth. Unbelievable. I mean, my favourite music book would be Crazy From The Heat, which is his autobiography. And it starts off with this thing, you know, I'm in, I'm in the Brazilian jungle, you know, and when you're there, always bring a big novel like Shogun with you or, you know, uh, something like that. And, and then by the end of it, he goes, it's not because you need something to read, it's because toilet paper disintegrates in the jungle. But these <laughs> novels, for some reason, <laughs> you can still use them as toilet paper. And I was hooked from the start. And I mean, this is a guy who like does, you know, the free climbing of, of, you know, sheer rocks. The man is a complete athlete when it comes to stagecraft. Uh, immensely interesting life, a kind of an intellectual Jewish guy who ends up becoming the lead singer of 
of Van Halen and become the ultimate quintessential Californian kind of guy. But he played in Vicker Street in 2004 and it was just an immensely brilliant gig because he's in his 50s, but he's coming out with a bottle of Jack Daniels and whatever and Young Band, they did Jump, Panama, all the Van Halen stuff. And of course, we miss Eddie Van Halen hugely. And then he does this total cabaret thing, which is get up onto the drum riser at the end of Jump and he's about to do that big scissors kick jump, you know. And he feigns off. He pretends he's got a bad knee, which is an old Dickie Rock trick as well, you know. (laughs) And he does it a second time. And then the third time, it hits it and he does the perfect scissors jump. So he's still in amazing shape. And I watch his... He does a kind of a live TV podcast. He does art. He does stuff like that. I, I, I follow Dave Lee Roth every single thing he does. And he was kind of Eddie Van Halen's foil in Van Halen for years. So when he died, it, you know, it brought up a huge amount of memories. But that gig, like v- Vicker Street's an amazing venue, 1,500 people. And it was just me and a bunch of Northern Rockers, you know, loving this guy, you know, while everyone else is going to the National and all this old rubbish, you know. You know yourself, Matt. David Lee Roth, let's hear a little bit, not from Vicker Street in 2004, but here he is performing Jump in Hartford, Connecticut, two years earlier. favourite from the MTUSA generation oh, as so well. Great. It's such a great song and, and I, I think it's one of the greatest songs ever written But uh, and that's very American optimistic thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That hugely optimistic thing. So so I suppose that, that's something I love in America that we you know we don't get in a lot of other music, you know. Paddy Cullivan, no surprise that your favourite movie that you've nominated very much is based on music. Oh yeah, Amadeus uh, uh, would be I think my favourite film of all time, Milos Forman, who directed one for The Cuckoo's Nest, but in 19, in the 80s, he tackled the life of Mozart. And I mean, it is just, I mean, I hate, I generally hate some movies about music. Why? Because they never get it right. Um, it, it's almost it's almost like a tabloid or potted history of, of a person's foibles. Do you know what I mean? Like The Doors or things like that. They were all about the drug taking or they're all about the madness. But but this was actually about the bit of the madness, but a lot about the work as well and and the genius and and almost almost a kind of um how you know just a genius doesn't have to be a perfect human being either so mozart is played by tom holson which is a great performance everyone talks about uh, f murray abraham as um murray abraham as salieri but tom holson's mozart he's just this complete rock and roll lunatic who just happens to have a gift from god and is the greatest composer of all time let's hear the scene in which he gets some feedback on his composition <laughs> a good effort oh well decidedly that an excellent effort. You have shown us something quite new tonight. It is new. It is, isn't it, sire? Yes, indeed. So, then you liked it. You you really liked it, sire. Well, of course I did. It's very good. Uh, of course, now and then, just, just, just now and then, it, it, it seemed a touch... Um... What do you mean, sire? Well, I mean, uh, occasionally it seems to have... Um... 
Oh, how shall one say? Um, how shall one say, Director? Too many notes, Your Majesty. Exactly. Very well put. Too many notes. I don't understand. There are just as many notes, Majesty, as are required, neither more nor less. Well, my dear fellow, there, there are, in fact, only so many notes the ear can hear in the course of an evening. I think I'm right in saying that, aren't I, court composer? Yes. Yes. On the whole, yes, Majesty. This is absurd. My dear young man, don't take it too hard. Your work is ingenious. It's quality work. And there are simply too many notes. That's all. Just cut a few and it'll be perfect. I, I just love that because it's the, the classic, um, you know, asking someone who doesn't know about music what they think of of a piece of work you've just done. And, you know, the ego of Mozart, they are saying there's neither too many nor too little. The perfect amount is there. And he knows. But he is facing the Emperor Franz Joseph there, who claims to know more than anyone else and is a divinity on earth. So there's a lot of very kind of brilliant uh, ideas in that, as well about music criticism. And let's go to favourite play, theatre show, musical. You have gone for? The Producers by Mel Brooks, uh, which was a marvellous film from 1967. Uh, I don't like musicals. I, 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 and I, I'm not saying I hate them. I'm just there's a, there's an air of unreality from them. But I think when I see something as brilliant as a producer storyline, which is two Jewish um, Broadway producers who realise they can make more money from a terrible uh, show closing than from a good one, and so they decide to put on a musical, a, a, a romp about Hitler and Ava Braun called Springtime for Hitler, and. I mean, it is absolutely one of the most daring and brilliant things. But then it was turned into a Broadway musical, which I saw twice with Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick. And that blew my mind. I couldn't believe it. So I'm, I'm, I'm warming to musicals all the time. I also saw Young Frankenstein, the musical, by Mel Brooks, which he followed it with. And the whole um, putting on the Ritz bit is one of the greatest things I've ever seen in a theatre. But it is truly... Um, I don't know if Mel Brooks could get away with it today, Matt. I'm not sure. I, I just think as comedy, I think it's the highest art as a film, but also as a musical. We actually have, it's from one of the movie adaptations. It was done again in 2006, the producers. Mm. So here is Springtime for Hitler. Look out, here comes the master race Springtime for Hitler and Germany Rhineland's a fine land once more Springtime for Hitler and Germany Watch out, Europe, we're going on tour. <laughs> I, think, I think my love of history combined with my love of comedy there, you know what I mean? I just think it really works. And uh, Larry David in Curb Your Enthusiasm then later does it in the show and he plays the part of the producer. That was John Barrowman singing it, by the way, who's a great uh, musical star. So um, it's just... A great piece of work. I think everyone should uh, should should try it at least once. Let's move to television. And you have a favourite as a child: the rise and fall of Reginald Reginald Perrin. Yes. Uh, do you remember this one? I Matt? do. Yeah. Did you? Well, I watched it with my dad. 
Um, my dad's a composer, but he also worked in an office for his sins. And he used to love watching uh, Reginald's daily uh, effort trying to get into the office. Um, uh, played by Leonard Rossiter, one of the great actors, uh, who was working for a guy called CJ, who uh, runs Sunshine Foods or whatever. And it, it was just, it was the greatest British satire of that kind of new corporate thing, that kind of British uh, middle class way of life. Uh, and then halfway through the series, um, Reggie does a John Stonehouse, leaves his clothes on the beach and swims to Australia and then comes back. And the, the whole thing is a, is a massive satire of British life. And that's kind of what I love, you know, um, um, about England is that it, it has a great capacity. You know, I'm, I can't stand the ruling elite of England, but I absolutely adore their ability to satirise themselves. And this is the greatest satire of the 70s. We have a clip in which I'm told contains some references that may be offensive to some listeners. I don't know. I haven't heard the clip. In it, Reggie, played by Leonard Rossiter, hears from Jimmy, played by Geoffrey Palmer, about his plans for a fairly secret army. Good God. You know what those are? Rifles? <laughs> Who on earth are these for, Jimmy? Army equipped to fight for Britain when the balloon goes up. What army? What balloon? Up what? Fight against whom? <laughs> Come on, Jimmy. Who, who are you going to fight against when this balloon of yours goes up? Forces of anarchy. Wreckers of law and order. Ah, I see. Communists, Maoists, Trotskyists, Neo-Trotskyists, Crypto-Trotskyists, Union leaders, Communist Union leaders. <laughs> I see. Atheists, agnostics, Long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans, football supporters, namby-pamby probation officers, rapists, papists, papist rapists, <laughs> foreign surgeons, head shrinkers who ought to be locked up, Wedgwood Ben, keg bitter, punk rock, glue sniffers, play for today, squatters, Clive Jenkins, Roy Jenkins, up Jenkins, up everybody's, Chinese restaurants. Why do you think Windsor Castle is ringed with Chinese restaurants? Is that all? Yes. I see. You realise the sort of people you're going to attract, don't you, Jimmy? Thugs, bully boys, psychopaths, sack policemen, security guards, sack security guards, <laughs> racialists, bashers, queer bashers, 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 anybody bashers, rear admirals, queer admirals, vice admirals, fascists, neo-fascists, crypto-fascists, loyalists, neo-loyalists, crypto-loyalists. You really think so? I thought support might be difficult. <laughs> <laughs> That's quite brilliant, but actually, it's, isn't it's, it? It's such great writing, though. Do you know what I mean? And I, I, I just think and great delivery, great delivery. But how they remembered it all, I don't know. But I just think that that it was it, it, kind of like Ray Davies' music with the Village Green or Arthur. Um, there's a great kind of anti-establishment stream in England, and and the comedy like that. I mean, me and Dad used to be just rolling on the ground laughing. Like he'd be laughing at the, like my dad couldn't watch The Office. He just said it was too much like real life. But actually, the, the, he found this immensely brilliant because it brought in all those things, politics, almost the wokeism of the 70s. Like that, that's what you're hearing there is everybody categorised down to an in, within an inch of their lives. If you did it now, you just throw Brexiteers and anti-Brexiteers in there. That's all it the is. Moaners they, and Brexiteers. They managed to define them all, you know. Yeah. OK, that's a fascinating one. Your pick from recent years is one that hasn't featured too often in the Culture Club. Mm. I think it's sometimes quite overlooked. Boardwalk Empire. Yeah, I love this show. More. I mean, everyone goes on about The Sopranos and The Wire. Uh, this has all of that. I mean, th th this kind of follows on from that. But Bordeaux Empire is set in the 1920s. Um, Nucky Thompson is the main character, played by Steve Buscemi. And um, he's a kind of an Irish-American, the manager of Atlantic City, which is funny, where my grandmother used to go and actually uh, bet every month. She'd go down with $200 and, and lay bets in Atlantic City. So New Jersey was kind of a... 
$200 is probably a lot back then, too. Maybe it was 100 I don't know. But but she loved to do it, and, you know, she, she'd keep it at that. And um, it, it was... Atlantic City in the 20s, though, was... And this is at the centre of Prohibition. Right, so imagine this storyline, Matt, where after a huge pandemic... Uh, that goes on. There's this total overreaction to it where everybody just is, you know, they prohibit everybody from doing anything they want to do or, or going for a drink. <laughs> That's why. So I watched it again recently in the midst of COVID and I couldn't believe a few of the similarities, you know. But it, it's brilliant because it involves, you know, World War One veterans. And what I especially love about Boardwalk Empire, it's got all the main characters, Al Capone, uh, Rothstein, um, even Senator Joe Kennedy turns up, but there's a huge Irish stream going on through it. His wife is Irish. A lot of the people who work for them are Irish. They are in the order of the of the Celt. Um, and he even goes to Ireland at one stage to try and um, swap uh, whiskey for Thompson submachine guns, which is what the IRA are trying to do, which is actually a thing that did happen. So there's a huge amount of Irish history in there, and I just wish we could make shows here that actually did as much about Irish history uh, in, in kind of that form as they do in Boardwalk Empire. Well, let's hear a little bit. Uh, here's a scene in which Eli Thompson makes a speech at, at the Irish dinner. It wasn't a famine of nature that killed our forefathers. It was a famine by Cromwell. And now, in our own time, the murdering Brits are at it again, slaughtering the heroes of the Eastern Rebellion, Kilmainham Jail, Pierce and McDonough. Eamon Shunt and Jonah Clark. Thomas, you idiot. What's he know? He was born in the States. Of course. Yes, Thomas. You speculate that those of us born here are less committed to the troubles back home. I'm saying, I've seen things with my own eyes in Dublin. By what right do the English suppress our brothers across My the ocean? My district alone raised over $2,000 for the fight. I held a second line against the Brits with nothing more than a fire token. It's my sons who are fighting and dying. With arms we provided. Up the rebel. Up, Up your asses. By no right at all. Gentlemen. fucking right in our brothers across the country. Again, say that again. Gentlemen. We are the United States. We. Sheriff Eli Thompson, everybody. What do you call an Irishman who doesn't swear? A mute. <laughs> what do you call an Irishman who doesn't drink? A corpse. <laughs> what do you call an Irishman from Atlantic City? It doesn't matter where he's from. You call him an Irishman. <laughs> you got me interested in going oh, back to that. You got to go back to it. And, and I'd forgotten the first time I watched it, so I watched all five seasons again. And it is just, it's such a deep dive into a historical period and yet it, it just comes alive you know it's amazing of course you love history and we mentioned these shows that you've done at the start of the Culture Club today Paddy Cullivan mm. but your favourite podcast is the Irish History Show tell us about this I love the Irish History Show with Carl Brennan and John Dorney um, I like Irish History podcasts in general I think they're all quite brilliant um, and these guys do an hour of exceptional um, uh work and, and they kind of go on a deep dive you know what I mean and it's you know it, what I'm starting to like about it is we're starting to kind of look at the kind of the blank revisionism we got over the kind of 80s and 90s and we're going back and we're kind of seeing whether and what I do in my shows as well we're seeing whether all of that is true or not or, and we're we're actually bringing in our own information I love Three Castles Burning by Donald Fallon he's a young historian but it's only 26 minutes long now I have to say I like the brief podcasts Matt I don't know about you yes. sometimes I don't have the hour to give it you yeah. know but depends uh, on how long you're willing to walk the dog for <laughs> that's true well you see you get 10,000 steps in an hour Matt you know that so I wish I could get that many in an hour but go on anyway <laughs> walk fast but, uh, but the main thing is I think 
what's brilliant about podcasts, I think, now is that we're finally getting to have these deep discussions. You know what I mean? And, and no offence to, to radio where you can chat for 10 or 20 minutes about something, but it's great to actually go on a deep dive into it and really kind of get to the heart of it. I, I For my show, I, did, I use a lot of podcasts. I listen to a lot of them, um, including lectures by Patrick Egan, that he, 15 minute ones he does for Trinity. They're all on YouTube and they're fantastic. Well, then just to finish, that's the podcast. You're definitely nominated, first person to nominate his favourite author, Pat Mills. Who? Pat Mills. I know, it's it's a strange thing. I was, I was racking my brain. I was going, oh, I love, you know, Catcher in the Rye and all of this. And then I thought to myself, no, you know what I really love? I love comics. And I've always loved comics and graphic novels. And the thing I started off with was 2000 AD in uh, about 1978, 79. Yeah, I remember that. And But I was also, he also wrote another thing. So he invented Judge Dredd effectively, which is the most unbelievable. If you read back now, and I am reading it back, um, they talk about a CCTV society. They talk about people do, doing plastic surgery to themselves. All the things we are living through now are things that were predicted in, in the 1970s by Pat Mills. But he also wrote Charlie's War, which is the greatest kind of tragic story of a young sto- a soldier, Charlie Byrne, born fighting in the trenches in World War One. And it, again, it's that brilliant anti-establishment British self-questioning thing, which I absolutely love. So both of those things, I think, really shaped my life in terms of history, sci-fi, things that I love and the imagery and the writing in them by Pat Mills were, were phenomenal. And I just think... You know, and comics are treated like they're for kids, but actually, you know, um, they can set you up for some of the best storylines ever. I mean, and I have to say, I mean, I love books and I love fiction, but I find often they they can be quite long and <laughs> don't get to the point quick enough. And I find that TV shows like Boardwalk Empire or comics like 2000 AD really get to the essence of, of brilliant storytelling. Paddy Cullivan, it's been fantastic having you here in the Culture Club on The Last Word of Today FM. Thank you very much for Thank being you. with us. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Listen live on air from 4.30 weekdays on Today FM. Hi, I'm Joanne Bregan. I was a nurse but wanted to go into teaching, so I did the postgraduate diploma in education practice at NCI. The course was excellent, and everything I learned there, I definitely use now in my teaching career. When I see myself now, I see living proof that NCI really helped me find my path. On Wednesday, June 8th from 5 to 7pm, join us for NCI's on-campus open evening and learn about our full and part-time courses in business, computing, psychology and education. To register, visit ncirl.ie.